Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 59th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Good, good. Glad to be back on a normal schedule in person here. So Better audio for the listeners. Yes, yes, of course. So as always, we'll start with the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And this data is as of the market close on August 18th, and the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 3.63% for the month and up 5.03% for the year. The Dow up 5.11% for the month and down 2.5% for the year. The NASDAQ is up 3.58% for the month and up 24.04% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is having a strong month at positive 6.13% and still down 5.6% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States is up 4.63% for the month and down 3.79% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently sitting at 0.10%, the two-year Treasury sitting at 0.15%, and the 10-year yield sitting at 0.67%. So kind of an interesting development in that, Matt, just to digress for a second, is that you know markets are moving higher, but we haven't really seen a big move higher in yields. So is that a problem, you think, long-term? Because typically when you see risk on, you see yields come back up, but that's not necessarily the case right now. Yeah, I think what you're seeing is the Fed leading into this election is just absorbing all that excess supply, in my opinion, right? So I think that um, as people are uh, unhappy with a, you know, half a percent rate of return on, you know, a longer dated US Treasury, as they're selling that, I think the Fed is, you know, sopping up that excess supply right now. Yeah, that's my opinion. Yeah, it's an interesting development for sure. We'll continue to keep an eye on that. Um, big news and headlines, current events from the past week. Um, there's still a stimulus stalemate in DC, Matt, and the Senate won't open for recess uh, or went on recess until September 8th. Mm. So um, we don't really know what's going to happen with that. Uh, Republicans are kind of citing improving economic data as their justification for a lower stimulus bill. Um, and they're standing at the $1 trillion mark. And Democrats, which started at $3.4 trillion, have initially come down to a $2 trillion stimulus bill. So we'll keep everybody up to date on that. But there hasn't been any major changes from last week. We're just like throwing around trillion here, trillion there. Trillion there. It just doesn't even matter anymore, it sounds like. Wow. Wow. I never thought... <laughs> I'd see this day this soon where we're just used to be the billion. Yeah, I know. We're just throwing around trillions. Yeah, what's next? Um, so COVID update. Uh, Tuesday of last week, August 11th, Russia announced that they registered the first COVID vaccine, Matt. So that's going to be interesting to see how that develops. And we'll be watching that closely as well. 
And also related to COVID, U.S. hospitalization rates peaked at the end of July from the quote-unquote second wave, and they are continuing to come down now. Yep. yep. So it's going to be an interesting uh, thing to see with college college students going back on campus what's going to happen because already UNC Chapel Hill and Notre Dame I saw have moved fully to online classes for the time being because they've had spikes um, on campus. I've heard that. Yes. So that's going to be interesting as well. An employment update. So last Thursday, for the first time in 21 weeks, initial jobless claims dropped below a million and came in at 963,000. Continuing claims also came in lower than expected. So that's another uh, green shoot, I guess, Matt, for the economy is that while that's still a very large number, they're continuing to come down. Very encouraging. Good data point. So, um, and as I mentioned kind of before, when going over performance for the month and the year, small caps have been outperforming in recent weeks. And, you know, small cap stocks were absolutely pummeled during COVID yep. in February and March. So there looks like there's a small rotation into smaller capitalization companies right now, at least for the time being. So we'll see if that lasts. Yep. Um, typically, in my opinion, that shows that, you know, the underlying economy is strengthening because those companies tend to have more exposure to the U.S. economy. So if those names are starting to strengthen, then that kind of points points to, in my opinion, that the economy is on its way to recovery. Another potential green shoot when you start to see those small caps outperform, yeah. right? I always like to talk about positive things. I hate talking about negative things. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Um... So moving on to uh, tweets and research, Matt. Yep. Uh, I'll have you start this week. You got it. So listeners, the first piece I'd like to discuss with you today is um, a second quarter earnings update. And this is from Bespoke as of the market close on August 10th. They said that more than 1,500 companies have reported their second quarter earnings results so far uh, since, of course, reporting began in mid-July. So far this season, Mark, 76% of companies have reported stronger than expected earnings per share results, while 66% have reported stronger than expected sales results. The strong earnings per share beat or EPS beat rate this season has caused Bespoke's three-month rolling EPS beat rate tracker to spike to a near five-year high. And if these beats remain strong in the coming weeks, they say, their tracker will likely make a new all-time high going all the way back to 2001. That's pretty strong. Yeah. And just for an example, this morning, Target blew out their expectations. So, again, it's hard to see past some of these tough times when we're in the thick of it, like we were in February and March, but everyone was like, oh, retail's going away, retail's dead, this is just speeding it up. Meanwhile, Target did pretty dang good. (laughs) They just hugely smoked earnings and revenue expectations, so they're doing pretty well right now. So it's just one of those things that you just have to take whatever you hear in the media, you know, especially related to the markets with a grain of salt. Absolutely. The other thing I'll throw out there, listeners, is when you have a late reporter in earnings season like a target, it does give you good insight to the state of the consumer. And so I think one of the good things that a lot of investors do is they'll look at that earnings call, the conference call from earnings, and they'll look to see 
what are the executives seeing right now in their mm -hmm. stores? And that is going to be one of the latest and most up-to-date data points on the state of the consumer. And that's another good potential tea leaf. And given those numbers, I have a feeling they're going to be saying positive things. Right, exactly. And we just have to remember that we're a, a very heavily consumption-based economy. And even in tough times, that's still going to ring true. Absolutely. So uh, one last piece from that bespoke uh, research, Mark. They said a whopping 188 companies have raised guidance since earnings season began on July 13th, including more than 56 stocks within the S&P 500, obviously more than 10%. So that's also uh, not a common theme during this type of environment. Right. Raising guidance, right? Uh, another piece I have. Can you just explain that to real quick, Matt? When sure. companies raise guidance. So when a company raises guidance, listeners, that means that they are telling uh, investors and uh, stock analysts that follow that they are going to be doing better than everyone's expecting. Right. Okay. Yep. So they're they're in essence raising the bar, raising expectations. Right. Right. All right. So the next piece, I have two specific data points. Going along with my earnings announcement theme to get a sign into the consumer, how I mentioned Target a second ago, I have two uh, other reports from two other companies that show signs the consumer's recovering. Okay, first one was from the uh, Royal Caribbean uh, earnings call on August 10th. The CEO said this in regards to 2021 cruise demand. He called it remarkable mark remarkable and he in not just rebookings or of canceled cruises he said more than 60 percent of their bookings received since mid-may have been new bookings that that surprised me and then he goes on to say and i quote i think we are seeing that there is pent-up demand people are frustrated being at home and being isolated the ceo said so again another look into the consumer next was the marriott ceo and says, quote, steady signs of demand returning. This was also on August 10th. Worldwide occupancy rates, which bottomed at 11% for the week ending April 11th, have improved each week, now up to 34% for the week ending August 1st. I find this interesting, despite the uptick in cases, Mark. What does this tell you about the state of the consumer? Well, this goes back to what we were just talking about. It's a heavily consumption-based economy, and if you keep people locked up for many months, they're going to have a, a need, an itch to spend. And I think people are getting to the point where they're just at the I don't care stage, and they're going to go on vacation and go on planes and stay at hotels and go to resorts because it feels different for them not to do that. Sure. And it just throws people's lives out of whack. So I think we're getting to that point, if we're not there already, that we're in the I don't care about the virus phase. Yeah. I mean, you're starting to see that a little bit, I think. Right. Uh, one last piece, Mark, I think listeners will appreciate. This is um, some research from Argus. That's an independent research firm that we subscribe to. August 14th is the date, and it's a specific update on housing. Okay. Existing home sales, which were down 32% in May from the beginning of the year in January, have started to rise as stay-at-home orders have been lifted. There were, they were up approximately 20% month-to-month in June. They noted that prices are holding up also, Mark. S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index uh, gained 4.5% year-over-year for the latest data for May. 
and that index is kind of um, an overall summary of real estate pro- prices across the U.S. mark. Okay. Right. So prices on average up 4.5% year over year. Year over year ending in May. And they finished up saying they had an interesting quote, quote, we think that on the other side of the pandemic, demand for homes with yards between neighbors and no elevator buttons to press will again be strong, end quote. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're starting to see data that in some of these bigger cities, you know, real estate's not doing good as you start to have this exodus to the suburbs again. I have some additional data points that I'm preparing for podcast number 60 next week that has some of that data. So I'll be bringing up listeners up to speed with specific numbers next week about that. Yeah. Yeah. We've gotten a bunch of questions on, you know, if now is a good time to start buying buying property or people always want to wait for that huge dip in prices, like, for example, 2007, 2008. But, you know, I have to remind people that that wasn't a normal dip. That was a crisis. It was centered on housing. So that Correct. was different. And everyone thinks that that will come back again. But that's not necessarily the case with interest rates so low. You know, I could see housing prices just continuing to run for years and years. So it's just one of those things where if you don't pull the trigger, you might end up three years down the road paying significant, significantly higher prices than you would have if you did it now. And everything you mentioned there, I don't disagree. And I would just add the one thing. I do think in some of these certain um, urban cities, this trend of people moving to the suburbs, that's going to have to play its way out over the next couple of years. And I am starting to see data from uh, cities like San Francisco, where um, I wouldn't say the prices are plummeting, but you are seeing very soft prices as a lot of inventory hits the market. And I think what that's going to do in reverse is as people then go to the suburbs, it's going to make it an even more competitive environment uh, for those buyers. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Back to you, Mark. So I... um... You know, I see these articles all over the place, and I wanted to bring one up, actually. So this this should be a zinger. This is an article in TMZ, and they're commenting on trading, which is interesting. So TMZ is commenting on stock trading. Yeah. Okay. So the title of this is, Day Trading on the Stock Market is Easier Than You Think. (laughs) And it says, Get Schooled in a Day uh, day trading, flipping stocks, making a bundle with ease. With ease. And I just want to read a couple lines from this article. Okay. First one, trading stocks can certainly lead to great fortunes if you know how to do it properly. And while that lifestyle may feel out of reach, it's actually pretty achievable, especially with the help of the secret to stock trading and profits bundle. You cover every base, like decoding the candlestick pattern so you know how to trade with minimal risks or learning the ways of Fibonacci so you can predict how much a stock can bounce back. We're no expert day trader, but the one-time $30 investment for this wealth of knowledge sounds like an easy winner. All in agreement? Say aye. (laughs) (laughs) I wish we had video on our podcast for this. This would be the perfect one to have video for. So these just, I mean, it's funny to me, but it's also like, it's just like predatory, you know? So I'm going to throw this out there. If someone is selling that you see online a secret trading tip or a way to make millions of dollars investing or day trading, do you really think they would be giving that away if what they had works? Touche. 
That just doesn't make any sense to me. It makes zero sense. So when people see stuff like that, think about that in your head. Would this person be giving this or selling this while they could just be making millions of dollars themselves off of it instead of selling it for 30 bucks? Or are they just trying to make a quick buck? There it is. So I think, again, I like to point out things that are wrong with our industry. There's a lot of this that goes on and it just sucks in people who are getting new to investing. So people that got laid off or their hours cut in May or or excuse me, in February or March, where there was no sports betting around, they got into investing. And someone sees something like this and they get sucked into buying that and then, you know, it ends up being a farce. You know, usually in the past, I would make this comment. I would usually say, you know, I would not advocate day trading, short-term trading, whatever you want to call it, with any money that you cannot afford to lose all of it, right? But here's now the caveat in the environment we're in. Some of these online trading platforms are encouraging things like shorting a stock. And listeners, what that is, is it's you borrowing a stock from somebody else in the hopes that it goes down so you can buy it back at a lower price. The problem that creates, Mark, is unlimited losses if that stock just runs and runs and runs. And now we're in an environment where I see headlines where Kodak a couple of weeks ago spiked temporarily on a government deal, and there were retail investors short that not only lost everything that was in their account, but the stock moved so much they owed more into it. And so this is just a dangerous, dangerous thing for retail investors. Yeah. And I just, you know, articles like that, I mean, it makes me chuckle. But at the same time, I know that people do get sucked into things like this. So if anyone sees this stuff online, I would recommend that you um, ask someone about it and or someone in the financial industry. And I'm sure you're going to get the same answer as, you know, don't touch that with a 10 foot pole. Yeah. I mean, the final comment is I, they're not exactly showing their brokerage statements, showing that they're actually doing these trades or actually been successful. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, why do you think there's hedge funds out there or traders out there that don't really share their secret sauce? Because it works and they don't want everyone else to do it. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're not showing our what's in our models, what's on our buy list. Right. That's our proprietary information. Right. So, again, there's no holy grail in investing, whether you're a day trader or you're a long term investor. There is no holy grail. So if someone's trying to pitch you something that is, I would like to tell you that that's not true. <laughs> Agreed. Um, the next article I had was another one from Michael Batnick on his blog post um, in his blog, The Ir Irrelevant Investor. And this one was titled, It's Either Sadness or Euphoria. Um, so I just wanted to read a few lines from it. When someone fills out a risk tolerance questionnaire, it's usually more a reflection of how the market is doing and less a reflection of how they actually respond to risk. Stocks are doing well. I can handle volatility. Volatility shows up. I'm somewhat risk averse, <laughs> but a global pandemic will change this dynamic very quickly. Certain investors are no longer responding to the stock market. They're responding to the world around them. So this is why I'm not really a huge fan of risk tolerance questionnaires, because I believe people's answers depend on what's going on in the market at that point in time. And I think it is more prudent to have the conversation of what people's goals and objectives are and then develop an investment plan around that to meet those goals. And that should determine the level of risk that people take. I don't disagree. I think that it is extremely challenging for the average investor to articulate 
what their actual risk level is. That is up, in my opinion, to the financial professional to ask detailed and various questions to derive that answer. Yeah, because I don't think you can just throw someone into, you know, a risk level just because they say they can handle volatility, but then when volatility shows up, they're going crazy. So I, th- I think you have to start with the goals portion of it. And like I said, develop, you know, your, in- your risk tolerance around those goals. I agree. And before you move on to the next point, when you said it's either sadness or euphoria, it reminds me of the old adage of, you know, what's the two guiding emotions in investing fear and greed, very similar to that. Yeah. And he's, and he talks more about how it's, uh, Michael talks more about how it's driven by demographics. So right now, new investors, younger investors in their in their young 20s, they've only known this huge rise from the bottom in February and March. So they're euphoric, all bullish on the market. Older generations that have seen corrections, pullbacks, recessions are more hesitant right now because they've seen how stuff like this has played, played out in the past and they're nervous that we're going to have another uh, tech bubble like event or another 2007, 2008. So I think it really does depend on demographics, how you feel towards the market and what your experiences have been. Because, you know, if I ask a 23 year old what they think, it's going to be completely different from what a 70 year old thinks. On well it. So that's again, well goes back to what we always talk about, how you can't necessarily take what someone says, you know, as uh, a Bible verse based on what they're doing because you're not in their situation. Exactly. This is another example of that. Exactly. So that's all I had for um, research that caught our eyes, Matt. Um, Moving on to the financial planning topic of the week, and I think we might have touched on this a little bit before, um, but it has to do with solo or owner-only 401ks. All right, good. I think that's a good topic. This one is, this blog post is by Blair Duquesne, and her blog is The Bell Curve, and this blog post is titled Retirement Planning for the Gig Economy. And again, this talks about the owner-only 401k, and I think that there's a big misconception out there that you have to be employed by a company that offers a 401k plan to save for retirement, but in reality, there's other options to sock away you know, a decent chunk of change every year if you're a, bu- a small business owner and you're the only person that quote unquote works in the business. I love this. This is a great, I'm glad you picked this one from Blair. So, um, and I think that, you know, this is timely just because I think COVID is, um, you know, quickly putting this forward or, or advancing the gig economy before it actually was supposed to get here with people getting laid off and people thinking of how else they can make a living instead of the traditional going to work for a big company that has traditional benefits and 401ks and health insurance and all that stuff. Um, So I think that this this article did a good job. So um, Blair says there is a feature in the tax code that allows an employee in the gig economy to set up a personal 401k plan. It's called a solo 401k, although in reality, it's no different than a traditional 401k plan, except that there's only one employee. So again, going back to the fact that there's a misconception on retirement savings plans for business owners, if you own a business and it's just you working, you're eligible for an owner-only 401k. 
And people think that they're only eligible for like a regular traditional IRA or Roth IRA if they own a business, but that's not the case, right? Because this year, if you're younger than 50 years old, you can only contribute $6,000 to a Roth or a traditional IRA. If you're older than 50, it's $7,000. But the, the reason why the solo 401k is so advantageous is that it allows the potential to defer up to $57,000 of earnings in 2020. And Blair describes how this works. So employee contributions, just like the traditional 401k, the only employee of your company, i.e. you, can defer up to $19,500 of your earnings as the employee participant in the plan. And that's if you're younger than 50. If you're older than 50, you can defer up to $26,000 as With em- the catch-up. employee contributions. Employer contributions, your employer, also you, can also contribute up to 25% of your compensation in addition to your employee's contribution for a max of $50,000 in total plan contributions in 2020. So again, these contribution amounts are significantly higher than the regular traditional or Roth IRAs and something solo business owners should consider, I think. Um, and the last point I want to highlight is Blair says, just like a regular 401k plan, you can set up your solo 401k to allow for Roth contributions from the employee. This means that you can make your employee contribution as a Roth contribution, which is an after-tax contribution. Mm-hmm which means there's no tax benefit today, but the earnings grow tax-deferred and withdrawals are tax-free in retirement. So again, works like a regular Roth 401k or a Roth IRA, um, except you know this is your own solo 401k. Um, so again, total contributions to your plan in 2020 can't exceed $57,000 um, or $63,500 if you're older than age 50. Got it. So I would just encourage people to just look into this and see if this is something that works for them. Um, Because I know that we've run into a lot of people where people have their own LLC or their own S Corp and they don't know that this option exists. They're just deferring into an IRA or a Roth IRA every year, not knowing that this option is available to them. Yeah, I think that's great that you pointed this out. Is this gonna be linked on our show notes? Yes, yes, this article will be linked on our show notes. So listeners, uh, as a reminder, you go to jessupwealthmanagement.com, you will hover over the podcast tab, and you will see a link for the show notes. I have uh, two comments, one, I have seen some clients who have these solo 401ks, Mark, where say they need to have um, some help on a short-term basis. Instead of paying that person via the W-2, which would make them an employee, they've paid them via a 1099, and that still allows them to have the solo 401k because they technically don't have any employees. Mm -hmm. Second comment I'll make, and we get this question a lot, is, down the road, explain to listeners what happens when they want to retire and they have money in a 401k that contains both Roth and traditional money. What happens when they want to move that to personal IRAs? Yeah. So what would happen is it would just be a rollover into your existing IRA or your existing Roth IRA. <clears throat> and it's separated. It should be coded based on whatever custodian that you use you have a Roth bucket and a traditional bucket. The traditional 401k money gets moved to your traditional pre-tax IRA, and the Roth money gets moved to the Roth IRA, which is after-tax money. So that money stays separate. 
Um, and it's the same way it works for if you work for a large employer and they have the option to do pre-tax contributions or Roth contributions, works the same exact way. That's tracked so that those funds aren't commingled per se. Got it. So the message for listeners is, is when you would make that transaction, that custodian would tell you of your, in my example, $100,000, 30 of it's Roth money and 70 of it goes into your traditional IRA. Yes. There yep. you go. Just yep. wanted to explain that. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, well, good job, Blair, on that on that article. Right? Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, that was really good. good. She's got a lot of good stuff too. Yeah. So, um, anything else before we wrap it up this week, Matt? I do not, sir. We're on the tail end uh, of earnings season. I think um, the political uh, presidential um, environment starting to slowly heat up. That's going to be interesting as we enter in September. Beyond that, I'm looking forward to. I've already started my notes for podcast number sixty. Yeah. Um, and for listeners next week, we're probably going to be recording early, probably on Tuesday, um, because we have some work obligations later in the week. So look out for, uh, episode number 60 to come out on Tuesday of next week. And I don't think I have anything else other than I think Biden was formally put up as the nominee Ah. after the convention, Ah. um, which I I don't like listening to the conventions because, you know, the the Democratic conventions just, uh, you know, poo pooing Trump. And then, you know, obviously next week, the Republican convention is going to be poo pooing Biden. And it's just a spat yeah, back just, and forth. It doesn't prop- do any, propaganda on both sides. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So and I don't think it really relates anything to um, our lives with investing right now anyway. So nope. Um, with that being said. Hope everyone has a great rest of the week and a wonderful weekend. Uh, All the parents who are sending their kids back to school, hopefully you guys are doing a good job and keeping the kids safe. And I hope that process goes smoothly as we kind of wind down uh, the summer of 2020. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.